Job 2. If you have an outline before you, you'll notice the question that is asked, why do you love God? Why do you love God? The songs that we've been singing about the mercies of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, and our love for God. You recall, not last week, but the week before in Job, Job had lost all earthly possessions, quite nearly. He'd lost his crops, he'd lost his sheep, he'd lost his camels, he'd lost his oxen, he had even lost his children. All had perished in one day. Job's great response at the end of Job 1, he arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He justifies God in the midst of his suffering. He reminds himself and all those who are witness to him of God's goodness. We will jump off of that into Job 2 today. This past week, I had the opportunity to catch up with some of uh, some friends from my seminary days, catch up with some old friends. And invariably, whenever you catch up with old friends, it had been probably six months since I talked to this one guy. He's now a pastor uh, at a church in Kentucky. And um, he and I have kept in touch, uh, not very regularly, but... He, we went through seminary together. He was my, uh, my grade competitor. Um, he and I would compete for grades on each test, on each project, until we uh, got to the end of the semester, and then uh, hopefully I would win, but it didn't always happen that way. And so we'd, we'd compete for grades, and, and he and I have a good relationship. He actually had just had twin boys not too long ago, and um, so it's been exciting to kind of talk with him about twins and some of the joys, some of the sorrows, some of the trials, some of the tribulations of twins. And it's been neat to get together. But invariably, as I talk with him, particularly, family came up. Family always comes up when you're talking to old friends. And what I love about that is that whenever I get to talk about my family, I get to contemplate, I get to meditate, I get to remember once again the love that we share. You know, I love my wife. My wife loves me. I love my daughters. My daughters love me. And what is particularly exciting and special and noticeable about the, this familial relationship, the love that we have, is that my wife's love toward me is because of who I am. She has loved me based upon a determination and a vow to love me, not necessarily because of my kindnesses to her, not necessarily because of what I do for her or my goodness. She loves me for who I am, not necessarily for what I have done for her. She's not going to stop loving me next week if I don't bring her flowers today. She's not going to stop loving me if I decide that I, well, if, if I have a lapse in judgment and I decide not to help her out around the house and I'm not washing dishes anymore and I'm not helping her change the girls anymore and I'm not doing anything anymore and she can do it all and if that were to happen this next week she would not stop loving me because she has determined to love me. She loves me for who I am. I love her for who she is. And so it is with God. 
The love which we have from God is not a love that is based upon our gifts, our actions, or our kindnesses to him. God loves us because he has chosen to love us. God doesn't love us because of what he can get from us. Just like I don't love my wife and my my wife does not love me for what we can get for ourselves. We love each other because we have determined and vowed to love each other. God loves us because he has determined to love us. Likewise, God asks from us the same thing. That our love for him would not be based upon his gifts and kindnesses, but based upon our determination to love him for his love for us. And so we ask the question today, why do you love God? As we do so, we'll see three important principles from Job's life. They are, in fact, principles of suffering because that's what he's going through. From his continued trials, these three principles will help us understand why we love God, particularly in the midst of trials, particularly in the midst of troubles, particularly in the midst of suffering. Let's look at those principles together in Job 2. Beginning in the first ten verses of Job 2, we'll see, first principle, man's sufferings, man's trials, man's troubles change nothing about God's character. Man's trials and his troubles and sufferings change nothing about God's character. Our narrative opens up in chapter 2, and remember we finished up last time on earth with Job having lost all of these things that he loves, particularly his family, which he held dear. Well, now we're back in heaven at the beginning of Job chapter 2, where Satan again comes and presents himself before the Lord. It says in verse 1, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And so we see this conversation. It is, in fact, very similar to the conversation we saw in Job 1. God asks the same question. Whence comest thou? Where are you coming from, Satan? Satan gives the same answer from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down upon it. And in verse 3, God gives the same challenge he gave before. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Same thing he said before, but notice he adds something to it this time. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. So God says, have you considered my servant Job? You remember I gave you permission to touch him, to to touch his life, to touch uh, his circumstances. And you took his oxen and you took his camels and you took his um, fields and his harvests and you took his sheep and you even took all of his children from him. You remember that, Satan? Satan says, yeah, I don't want to think about it. Yeah, you remember how Job responded to this? Yeah, yeah, I remember how Job responded to this. What did he do? Well, he stands fast. In his integrity. He still worships me. He still loves me. He still justifies me before men. Satan, however, gives a bit of a different response. He says in verse 4, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. He has taken 
every earthly possession from Job, and Job has maintained his integrity before God, but Satan knows human nature, and he knows it very well. He understands full well that while men feel great sorrow when bad things happen to ones they love, and when bad things happen around them, there is a greater degree of difficulty in the heart of a man when bad things are happening to his very body, to his very health. It is one thing for him to praise God when he's mourning over his children's death. It's another thing to praise God when he himself feels about to die. Skin for skin, Satan says. All that a man hath will he give for his life. Most of us have felt the difference in this room between when you hear perhaps a loved one who has an ailment, a loved one who has a trial or a trouble or a health difficulty, and you can grieve for them and you can feel for them. You would not want anything to happen to them. But perhaps there's a different feeling, a different dread, when you hear the doctor say, you have this, you have this problem, you have this ailment, you only have this long to live. Perhaps there's a different dread when it comes to our own life. And Satan was counting on this. This helps us understand something about Satan. Satan and his minions are not just drones. We've talked about this before. Their temptations are not just shots in the dark. They know human nature. They know what works. And I'll tell you what, the same thing that worked in the Garden of Eden is the same thing that works in our hearts today. Satan knows how to appeal to our pride. He knows how to appeal to our logic. He knows how to push our buttons. Satan is a great enemy and we must never underestimate him. So the Lord says unto Satan in verse 6, Behold, he is in thy hand, but save his life. God gives Satan permission to afflict not just Job's surroundings, but to afflict his very body. However, the specific condition is that Satan may not take his life from him. He can take him to the very edge of death, but Job must not die. Pastor, you ask, why? Why would God do such a thing? Why not just keep protecting Job? Job's already proven that he would maintain his integrity, why would God allow this suffering now to come upon Job? Well, I can't really give you a definitive answer to that question because I can't step into the mind of God. We know what we can see from the book of Job. We know that God was using Job to teach men and angels a very important lesson about loving God. We know that God was using Job to glorify himself before Satan, who would seek and love nothing more than to see such a man as Job fall in his integrity. But all we can really say when we contemplate these trials and these tribulations of Job, why they would happen, we can contemplate, we can assume, we can see the trends, but we need to recognize that God is God. That at the end of the day, though we can seek for reasons, God owes us no explanation for why he does what he does. He can do whatever he will. 
He will be consistent with His character. He is a merciful, a loving, a long-suffering God. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. He will be consistent with His character. But He owes us no explanation. For He is God. It is only for us to know who God is and to serve Him in light of what we know Him to be, who we know Him to be, and to seek to glorify and justify Him regardless of the physical circumstances within which we find ourselves. And I know, it's going through each of your minds, it's going through mine as well. Pastor, very easy to say, much more difficult to do. Very easy to say. When we are not in trials, troubles, tribulations, health problems, physical problems, financial problems, it's very easy for us to say, God is God, we are man, He owes us no explanation, And we just need to love Him and serve Him still. Much more difficult when we're in the midst of the trials. When we're in the midst of the difficulties. But it doesn't change the truth. And so Job is afflicted. Verse 7. Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. I cannot even put into words the kind of suffering and pain Job would be going through at this time in his life. In my book sermon, I mentioned that these would have been extremely tender, painful boils. I remember when I was younger having a sunburn, and I got sunburned on my shoulders so bad that I got blisters, large blisters on my shoulders. So much so that I could not even bear to put a shirt on because anything touching those blisters it was the nerves were so sensitive from that sunburn that just to just to blow air on those blisters was excruciatingly painful that pales in comparison to what job would have been going through and it says that he had them from the soles of his feet that's these things that's not up here that's down here to the crown of his head the the hairs as they would have blown in the wind, blowing over those boils would have been excruciatingly painful. He couldn't walk. He has boils on the bottoms of his feet. There's no way he'd be able to walk. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't go anywhere. Notice Job's physical response in verse 8. He took a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. A potsherd would have been a shard of a a pot that has been kilned so it's, a, it's a, a piece of clay that's been fired so it's hard and he would take it and he would scrape those boils he would try to drain the pus out of them with the piece of this, this clay when I had those large blistered sunburns now you're not supposed to pop blisters but these blisters were making it so to where I could not function so my mom, she's a nurse, and so she sterilized everything very well, and she went about to pop those blisters and to drain those blisters in order that I could finally, again, function and live life a little bit. That was not a pleasant day for me, the day that those blisters had to be popped. You want to talk about the pain of air going across the top of those, imagine the pain of the tender area underneath as it, re- it was touched and as air blew by them and all of those things. But there are things that needed to be done in order that I could do something, in order that I could live. Job had to do something. He had to move. He had to live. And so he would scrape those boils and try to drain those boils in order that he could, they could begin to heal and they wouldn't infect. And he was trying his best to 
keep them from getting more infected and to keep things clean. Uh, terrible, terrible circumstance. And it says that Job sat down in a pile of ashes and mourned. So we leave Job sitting there. And at this point, we are introduced to Job's wife. She enters the narrative. She is only found in one verse in the entire scriptures, and this verse does not paint her in a very positive light. Look at verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. The question is, why did she say this? Well, there are lots of reasons why perhaps she said this. We could try to delve into her mind a little bit. I've heard many people say, well, she's faithless. I've heard entire messages wrapped around uh, condemning this woman. There are some that say, well, she simply is so upset to see her husband in such a state, she is wishing his death because she doesn't want to see the pain that he's in. She loves him. She doesn't want to see the pain, so she's actually wishing his death. There are others who say, you know, she has just lost all of her children. Her husband is in great pain. She has lost a great deal of her household possessions. She's going through a difficult time as well. All of these theories might play a role, or none of them may play a role. We really don't know because we can't get into her mind. And it's okay that we don't know. Because Job 2.9 is not in the Bible for us to judge Job's wife. The role of Job's wife in this narrative is not to draw attention to her. It is to draw attention to Job's response to her. And his response to her is in verse 10. Notice what he says. He said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. This verse well summarizes the first point that we have made this morning. Man's suffering changes nothing about the character of God. The believer with a proper perspective on God does not love God because of what God has done for them physically. They do not love God because of the physical circumstances that they find themselves in. They love God because of who they know God to be. Let me say it concisely. We do not love God for what He does for us. We love God for who He is. We do not love God because He showers physical blessings upon us. We love God because we know who God is and He is worthy of our love. We love God because we know what He's done. We love God because He is our Creator, because He is good, because He is merciful, because He is gracious, because He is long-suffering, because He is patient. We love Him because He is just. We love Him because He is righteous. We love Him because He is holy. We love Him because He is kind. We love Him because He is love. We don't love God for what He has done for us. We love God for who He is. I've made that statement very generally. I say we. But perhaps you sit in this room today, you are listening to the Word of God as it's preached, and perhaps you have a hard time loving God when the times get rough. Perhaps 
when things aren't going well for your family or for your job or for your health, you find yourself souring against God. May I encourage each of us to check our own hearts, to check our own motives. Why is it that you love God? What is it about God that keeps you loyal to Him? If you were to lose everything that you had today, would you still love and serve God? Or would you say, that's it. I've had enough of this. I'm done with Him. Look what He's done. Look what He hasn't done. Why do you love God? We love God in spite of our circumstances, not because of our circumstances. May I encourage you to determine in your heart that you will love God, that you will faithfully serve God, not because of what He does for you, but because of who He is. And so we see that man's suffering changes nothing about God's character. God does not stop being a loving, kind, good God just because we go through trials. Second, second principle in the scriptures, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2, man's suffering changes nothing about God's sovereignty. Man's, first, man's suffering changes nothing about God's character. Second principle, man's sufferings change nothing about God's sovereignty. We're now introduced in verse 11 and following to three friends that have come from their own homes having heard about the terrible circumstances that Job has suffered with the express purpose of mourning with him and with comforting him in his affliction. We are introduced to these friends in verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Now we don't really know how much Job's friends knew before they began to make their journey to comfort him. We do not know if they knew about the physical circumstances he was under. We assume that they had heard about his family and all of his uh, possessions being taken. We can probably well assume as well that they knew about the physical afflictions upon him. They had heard that he was not well. They had probably heard something to the effect of Job is on death's doorstep. Because remember, Satan was going, he couldn't, he couldn't kill him, but he was going to bring him to the point where he thought he was going to die. Job's wife thought he was going to die. He probably thought he was going to die as well. This is just a terrible circumstance. Job's friends come to comfort him. Now these men arrive. Look at verse 12. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off, they knew him not. They lifted up their voice and wept and rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was great. Job had been so disfigured by the boils that were on his body, by the scraping, by the infections, by all of these things, that they could not even recognize him. Perhaps Job had lost a great deal of weight throughout this ordeal. The time that he had been sitting there, perhaps, well, when you're in a great deal of pain, you don't have much of an appetite, do you? And so perhaps he hadn't eaten much. So he'd lost some weight. The boils were all over his body. Pain, anguish upon his face. Ashes all over him. Sitting in an ash heap. Clothes rent. And when these 
three friends see him, they rend their own clothes, the sign of mourning in Middle Eastern culture. They put ashes upon their own heads. They sit upon the ground and for seven days and seven nights they say nothing. Now I mentioned this in the book sermon, but it bears mentioning again. This is a bit unusual for these three comforters. They had come to mourn and comfort him, but they end up not in fact comforting him, but rather simply sitting with him. We'll find out in chapter 4 that they have no words of comfort for him, in fact, because as they saw his circumstances, they looked at him and said, there's no way God could possibly have done this to him. There's no way God could possibly have allowed this. He must be a horrible, rotten sinner, and this must be the judgment of God. There's no way this could be anything other than the judgment of God. That was what was going through their mind. That was what was in their hearts. And so simply put, they had no words of comfort for him anymore. They had nothing kindly to speak to him about because they said he's, he needs to repent of some terrible sin. And this is where we must remind ourselves of the context of the book of Job. Recall even just today, as God spoke with Satan, he said that he has gone against Job without cause. We must remember that Job has done nothing wrong. We must remember that this is not judgment for sin. We must remember that God is still in control. Just because Job is suffering, just because these terrible things have happened, we must remember that God is still in control of his circumstances. You know, perhaps someone you know or love is under some great measure of suffering in their own life. Perhaps you feel that that suffering is completely out of your control and it frustrates you. Maybe it's out of their control. Maybe it's even out of the doctor's control. Or it's out of the control. Uh, their finances are out of, out of your control. Their, their health is out of your control. Whatever it is, you feel like it's out of control. Well, Job 2 reminds us that the things which are outside of man's control are not ever outside of God's control. Just because we or our loved ones, or our doctors cannot control what is happening in our lives, it does not mean that there is not a God in heaven that sees, that he does not know, that rather he is in complete control of the circumstances. Man's suffering changes nothing about God's character. Man's suffering changes nothing about God's sovereignty. Third and finally today in chapter 3, we see that God's, Attributes change nothing about man's suffering, but everything about man's response to suffering. Who God is, God's attributes, they don't change our suffering, but they do change our response to suffering. Look with me at Job chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day, and Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which I, it was said, there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above, neither let that light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined into the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let the night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day, who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light and have none, neither it see the dawning of the day, neither let it see the dawning of the day. 
because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? Or why the breast that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet, I should have slept. Then had I been at rest, with kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or as a hidden untimely birth had I not been, as infants which never saw light. There, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together, and hear not the voice of the oppressor, the small and greater there, the servants is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery? And life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasure, which rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whom, whose way is hid, and whom God hath hedged in? For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest. Neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Job says, why didn't I die when I was born? Why was I even born? He says, there is so much pain, there is so much anguish here. Why am I alive? I want to die. Why can't I die? Why can't death just come quickly? Why did I even come out of the womb alive? Why couldn't I have been one of those miscarriages? Why couldn't I have been one of those stillborn babies? Why did I even have to see the light of day? Why did light ever touch my eyes? Why, couldn't I, why can't I just die? Why is light hid from me? Why can't I find God? Why is God not there? Why am I so confused? Why am I in such misery? Everything, if I think something bad is going to happen, it happens to me. This is the worst case scenario. He's in anguish. You can hear the anguish in his voice. And he says, I just want rest. I just want to die and be at rest. I want to go to that place where there is no longer the master and the servant. Where there's no more anguish. Where there's no more trial. Where there's no more trouble. Where there's no more tribulation. I just want to go home. I just want to be at rest. Keep in mind as we think about Job's response in Job 3, what he's already said in Job 1 and 2. Keep in mind he has already justified God. He has already responded in faith. He is not here falling back upon faithlessness. But we must remember that even when our spirits justify God, even when we remain steadfast in our love for Him, even when we are determined to love God for who He is, not for what He has done for us, we still are in the midst of a difficulty when we're in the midst of a difficulty. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could just shut off the human button when we come into difficulties? Wouldn't it be great if we could just convince ourselves that nothing's wrong when trials come? When we see trouble brewing on the horizon, wouldn't it be great if we could just flip a switch and all of a sudden all of our cares would be gone and uh, we could just fall asleep and tell people, wake me up when, when, when all the bad stuff is over. 
and let's just, when, when all the bad stuff is done, then, then wake me up and we'll move on with life. This is not to be human. This is not how it works. Job 3 reminds us that just because we trust God, just because we love God, just because we maintain our integrity before God in the midst of our suffering, does not mean that we will not shed tears. And it does not mean that we will, be filled with, we will not be filled with sorrow. Have you ever gone through a trial or trouble and felt guilty? Or perhaps felt like you weren't responding like a Christian should simply because of your sorrow? Have you ever felt guilty for your sorrow? Well, we shouldn't need to. That sorrow should be the means by which we point our eyes up to God, where we justify God in the midst of that sorrow, and where we determine to love Him in spite of that sorrow. But that doesn't mean we're not going to feel the sorrow. If I were to summarize Job's emotion in chapter 3, it would be with that question, why was I even born? Now, very important as we consider this chapter together. Job feels that God has forsaken him. We see that from verse 23. Why is light given to a man in whom the way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? God has put me in a box. He's hedged me and I can't see him. I, can't, I don't know where to go. I don't know what's going on. God has placed me in a very difficult situation. But notice he never stops trusting that God is also his solution. He doesn't say, so I'm going to go at it my own. He says, God, why don't you give me light? His faith is overcast by sorrow and doubt, but his faith is still very much there. His perception of who God is hasn't changed in the least. His love for God hasn't changed in the least. His justification of who God is hasn't changed in the least. He's just wondering where God is. He can't find him. Very strong response. But let me highlight this morning what Job is not feeling. Because it's very important that we do not mischaracterize Job. First, this is not Job being suicidal. This is not Job being suicidal. There is a difference between a man who wishes he did not exist and a man who takes his own life. There is a difference between a man who finds no hope and a man who is darkened from knowing the way that he should go. Job never loses sight of the fact that he has no right to take his own life. To take one's own life is to tell God that you know better than God does what you need and when you should die. Notice that's not at all what Job is saying here. Job never says, God, I know better than you do. It's time for me to die. Job says, God, why don't you just let me die? Why can't you just let it all end here? Why was I even born? But though he's questioning God's choices in his life, he is never setting God aside and saying, it's time for me to take these circumstances into my own hands. It's time for me to determine when I live and when I die. Suicide is a reflection of hopelessness and selfishness that states that God is not in control that God does not have a purpose, and so I am going to take things into my own hands. That is not what we see here in Job. That is not his heart. He is not suicidal. He is sorrowful in his existence. But he does not presume to take his own life into his own hands. 
Job is neither suicidal nor is he in a state of utter hopelessness. The hopeless man is a man that does not have any faith that God is in control. If God is in control, then there is always some hope. And though Job is darkened, though Job cannot see the way, though Job is sorrowful, though Job is discouraged, though Job is confused, Job still is looking to God. He says, God, why? Because he knows that God is there. He knows who God is. He's just trying to reconcile that with his circumstances. Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Do the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties come? Yes. But we're not cast down. We're not destroyed. We're not in despair. We're not distressed. Because we have a God in heaven. And we know who that God is. As we close today, Let's review. It is okay to be sad. It is okay to feel human emotion in the midst of human trial. Being a Christian does not make you less human. Being a Christian does not demand from you a less human response to suffering. The difference in trouble and trial and tribulation between the man who knows and loves God and the man who does not know and love God is a difference of perspective, not of emotion. It is a difference of eternal hope and temporal sorrow. If the believer and the unbeliever were to stand up here today, each going through the exact same circumstance, perhaps you would see each one of them crying over the loss of a loved one. Perhaps you would see each of them shedding tears, each of them wondering what direction they should go in, each of them wishing they could have their loved one back. But the difference would be that the man who loves and believes God would know that there's a God in heaven who is in control and would justify God in the midst and would have a hope that perhaps they would see that loved one one day or at least have a hope that God is in control. The one who does not know God The one who does not understand his character. The one who does not recognize that we love God not for what he has done for us, but for who he is. That one is the one that is going to despair of life. Is going to wonder if there's any purpose, if there's any hope, if there's any anything. Because he has no knowledge of the character of God. Even though we're in the midst of grief and trial, there are certain feelings, there are certain emotions, however, that we have no right as humans and particularly as Christians to think. God is your creator, therefore you have no right to take your own life. You did not create your life, you have no right to take it away. This is a right that we do not have as humans. You have no right to accuse God of injustice. You have no right to call God unfair. You have no right to despair of God's existence or of his control. These are emotions that we as believers have no right to feel. Because the scriptures teach us very clearly that those emotions are untrue. Now we memorized a while back that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart of a man might desire to think those things. But the Christian Man, the new man, the Holy Spirit within us, the Word of God reminds us that we have no right. 
to take our own life. We didn't create it. We have no right to take it away. We have no right to accuse God. God does not answer to us in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And so it is our responsibility to allow our faith in who God is to override the sorrows and the trials and the tribulations in this life. We must remember who He is. And though we will face sorrow, we can rest in a God that is greater than our sorrow. Though we face trial, we may rest in a God that is greater than our trials. Let's pray.